cold turkey from Ms. Claire Lopez. I finally have my fix, and she is back in the saddle for all the new listeners. Ms. Lopez is a 20-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency and runs, I believe, what, Lopez LLC? Lopez? Lopez Liberty, Liberty LLC. Lopez uh-huh. Liberty LLC. I should have had that figured out by now. For what? What is? So I just maybe I'm just nihilistic, and maybe I'm blessed to be, a, you know, a, a, a white male in an upwardly mobile class in the United States in 2021, and I'm allowed to look at things in the world and kind of brush them off. But before we did this, I logged on the youtube came up and they recommend all the shitty uh, nighttime shows and there's one with trevor noah and it just said the is israeli palestinian conflict and part of me just admittedly maybe a little tasteless my first thought was like which one it's been going on for so long what is going on right now is it important is this just another skirmish or am i living under a rock well, first of all, it's really glad to be back. I, I am really glad to be back with <laughs> yeah. you, Tommy. Yeah. Uh, it's very nice to be back on the show. Yes. So thank you uh, in your new digs. Um, and uh, I mean, the timing, I guess, uh, is just about right because uh, over this past, um, well, weekend, several days, um, Israel has once again come under uh, all-out uh, attack, assault, uh, by the jihadis in Gaza, Hamas, and uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, sometimes call them PIDGE for short. Um, both of them, of course, um, backed, funded, armed, trained uh, by the Iranian regime in Tehran. Um, this time uh, had a, a kind of a long lead up and a confluence of events that kind of came together. Um, we are uh, yesterday, um, the 12th of uh, May here, 2021, um, on the last day of Ramadan. Um, that is the, uh, the month, uh, obligatory month of fasting uh, among the, uh, the five pillars of Islam. Um, they uh, do not eat or drink all daylight hours, which basically means they skip lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that period of time, tensions began to rise again for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons um, had to do with politics, if you can stretch over to Judea and Samaria and the Palestinian Authority. So Mahmoud Abbas, known as Abu Mazen, uh, is currently in, I think it's the 14th year of a four-year term. Uh, as president of the Palestinian Authority. And he and his advisors um, decided that, you know, maybe it was time to have elections again. And they had set those elections to be around mid-May, around where we are now. But as the date got closer, um, the advisors and Abu Mazen all realized that were the elections to be held, very likely Hamas would win, just as back in 2006 when Hamas won those elections, very ill-advised um, under President Bush and uh, Condi Rice kind of forced the Israelis to allow it to happen. A huge mistake. Hamas won those elections. And then you will remember the, the horrific violence of, of, of literally kicking Fatah 
and the Palestinian Authority out of Gaza. Uh, and and uh, Gaza has been dominated by Hamas alone ever since. Well, uh, that is what they feared would happen this time. Only this time, Hamas has deep connections and influence in Judea and Samaria as well. And they realize they can't do that. That would be a disaster. So uh, how to get out of it? Um, not easy. So what, what they came up with was, well, they would demand of the Israelis uh, that Palestinians, um, Arabs living in eastern Jerusalem, now united uh, all together with all of Jerusalem, right? But that those Palestinians, those Arabs, uh, would be allowed to vote absentee ballot uh, in the Palestinian Authority elections. Does this kind of sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Um, and Israel naturally said, well, no, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Uh, you, 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 you're not going to be voting absentee if you live here for uh, what's going on over in Ramallah, Palestinian Authority elections. And bingo, they had their they had their uh, complaint that you know they had their uh, uh, their problem. Um, so there's one there, there's one part of this. Um, of course, Ramadan itself being another. Um, as I said, it's it's this obligatory month of skipping lunch. But uh, in addition to that, uh, it's also a month for jihad. Mm-hmm. Um, they get extra points for conducting jihad attacks. And no, jihad is not mental yoga. It's not getting to the gym three times a week. It is warfare against non-Muslims. And that's what it says in the books of law. Mm-hmm. Um, so extra points for jihad attacks during the month of Ramadan. And indeed, attacks ticked up, um, including um, towards the end of Ramadan, the, the, the first part, well, end of April, beginning of May, um, random attacks on uh, Jews in the old city of Jerusalem, um, just picking out, you know, uh, someone identifiably Jewish by clothing or whatever, um, and setting upon them, beating them, knifing them. Um, so that those tensions picked up. Um, and um, and then uh, out of out of uh, the weakness um, of, you know, the Palestinian Authority, uh, at the top, Abu Mazen, um, quite elderly, not in good health, having trouble with figuring out if they're going to have an election or not. Um, then there is confusion at the top levels of the Israeli government, too, of course, as they uh, try to see who can put together a coalition uh, for the next uh, government. Uh, at the moment, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still prime minister, but they held their fourth elections in two years not long ago. And as with the previous ones, it was a kind of a stalemate. Um, uh, Bibi Netanyahu was not able uh, in the time limit allowed to put together uh, a coalition government. So the president, uh, Rivlin, uh, gave the mandate over to, to another uh, to see if, if that could work out to be a coalition. But in other words, uncertainty at the top of the Israeli government. Mm-hmm. And then finally, of course, um, you know, the absolute pile of limp spaghetti that we have living in the White House right now here in Washington, D.C., uh, which the entire world sees 
as open season uh, to try to get away with, you know, whatever they can get away with, at least in terms of, you know, the rogues of the world. Um, Xi Jinping of China, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia, the mullahs in Iran, and, and of course, there in the Middle East. Um, so all of those things kind of uh, came together on a weekend when last Friday, the 7th of May, was the last Friday of Ramadan. Um, and that is a day designated by the Iranian regime as Al-Quds Day. Al-Quds being the word for Jerusalem. We'll all recall, of course, that there is the Quds Force, which is a division of the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, so Al-Quds Day is is a day, uh, you know, for special chanting, you know, Margbar Israel, uh, Margbar Amrika, death to America, death to, to Israel. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, this past Monday, which would have been the 10th of May, um, was Jerusalem Day for the Israelis. And, and that's a day annually when Israelis celebrate the reunification of Jerusalem uh, after the 1967 war. So all these things that I just mentioned came together and basically exploded. That, that was that was beautiful. People would pay for that kind of explanation. And I just, <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll give you my bank account uh, offline here. Not me. Other people would, but uh, <laughs> it's it's that that was beautiful. I just I forgot I was doing a podcast. That was that was amazing. Is it? So is this just a thing that is it naive, or is it? I guess is it even realistic for someone like myself? 30 years old, trying to figure out the world as I go. Is it naive to even look at this type of thing and say, will it ever be solved? Or is this something where, I mean, again, in my short 30 years, I remember when I was a lifeguard in 2009, there's a video of me and my friends it's right before we all went to college last summer after high school. And there's a video and like I'm talking in it and like you can't hear me because my friends are making noise. And we turn around in the pool and they both have like hoses and they're just spraying each other in the face. And they're using boogie boards as shields. We're 19, just adults. And I, I, I was like, what are you guys doing? And they looked at me and one said, I'm Israel. And the other said, I'm Hezbollah. But like that was 12 years ago. And that was one third of my life ago. And even then it was like. It wasn't a new joke. It was just, oh, it's just they're clashing. Is this ever going... Someone as well, intelligent and seasoned as yourself can break it down. Yeah. Let, let, let me take you back a little longer sure. than even 2009. Um, I would have to take us back about 1,400 years. Okay. To when Islam began. Okay. Uh, in the 7th century. And... You and your listeners probably know um, that in the life of Muhammad, the Sirah, they call it, the Sirah Rasulallah, um, in the Quran itself, um, our accounts and the Hadiths, our accounts um, of how Muhammad and the armies of Islam obliterated the Jewish tribes that were then flourishing around the Arabian Peninsula. The Banu Nadir, the Banu Kanuka, and the Banu Quraysh. 
Those were the three tribes, Banu meaning tribe of each one of those. And uh, two of them uh, first were defeated in battle, and then they were told, pack up your stuff, get on your camels, and go, get out of here. Exiled away from the Arabian Peninsula, and they left and they went. The third tribe, however, defeated in battle, um, thought they were going to be given that same ultimatum, you know, pack your camels and get out. But no, instead, um, this is this is now the year 628, the Battle of the Trench. And um, what Muhammad did instead there uh, is uh, decided to take all the women and children as slaves and they beheaded all the men and teenage boys. Some, uh, we're not sure of the number exactly, seven or eight hundred or so beheaded. Uh, and that was the end, pretty much, of the Jewish presence on the Arabian Peninsula. Well, in the Quran, in multiple places, it says that Muhammad, now remember, the Quran is believed by Muslims to be the literal word of God transmitted by way of revelations to Muhammad. That's what they believe. And in there it says that Muhammad is the Ansan al-Kamil. Ansan al-Kamil means the perfect man. Now, what he did, no matter what it was, was you know, he, he entered the bathroom with his left foot. I mean, literally, yeah. Um, he uh, used a certain twig for a toothbrush. Whatever he did in his life recounted in the hadiths that are authentic, in uh, the Sirah, in the Quran especially, every Muslim for all time is obligated by the doctrine of the faith to emulate, to copy. So, Muhammad ethnically cleansed the Arabian Peninsula of Jews. He slaughtered them, he exiled them. So that is a commandment for all Muslims for all time. Okay, that's number one. Two more to go. The second one is called the doctrine of sacred space. And what that means in Islamic doctrine is that any land ever occupied or conquered by the forces of Islam uh, is forever waqf. W-A-Q-F, waqf. And that means an endowment in perpetuity of that land by Allah to Muslims. So even if that land is lost later on, like the Iberian Peninsula after the Reconquista, uh, the subcontinent of Asia, India, you know, became uh, independent. Um, and, and of course, um, the modern day uh, reestablishment of, of the nation state of Israel in its ancestral homeland, the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. So all of those places you can see, right, are under attack by the forces of Islam. Because why? Because they're obligated to take it back. They lost it over the centuries one way or another. They are obligated as faithful, devout, practicing Muslims to take it back, and it doesn't matter how many hundreds of years it takes. That's number two. Number three, real quick, is a concept called dimitude. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or not, but uh, it's in the Quran, and there's a place there. It's also in Islamic law books, which I have and I have read. Um, 
And uh, the section there is called the Ahladimma. Ahladimma means the Dimmi people. And what that refers to are primarily Christians and Jews um, of the Middle East, certainly of the Levant, um, that were conquered by the armies of Islam at one point or another uh, and subjugated under uh, onerous restrictions and regulations and laws. They were given what the Reverend Mark Dury called in his book, the third choice. So typically, uh, if, if, if it were a tribe of, you know, idol worshipers, they're just pagans, it's either convert or die, right? Convert or, or, you know, off with your head. But the Christians and the Jews having a recognized uh, revealed scripture, this is, reveal, uh, this is uh, recognized by Islam, the revealed scripture of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, uh, they were given this third choice. The third choice was you can convert, you can be killed, uh, but you could also pay uh, the jizya, a special tax, which is to be found in verse 929 of the Quran, which says uh, basically fight and kill the infidel, uh, even if they be people of the book, um, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. That's the verse, 929. So they have to pay this annual blood tax to be allowed to live, to be allowed to, you know, and they have to keep all of the different regulations. If they break the regulations, which have to do with things like, no, you may not build a new church, you may not build a new synagogue, you may not repair the roof if it caves in, uh, you may not sing loudly, you may not blow the shofar on the high holy days for the Jewish people, uh, all kinds of things. You may not carry weapons, you have to wear certain clothing and certain colors of clothing. By the way, that's where the yellow patch comes from. Okay. It's not Hitler. Okay. Oh, Hitler okay. copied that. It's from Islam. They forced the Jews to wear a yellow patch front and back in their clothing so they could be seen coming and going, so they could be shoved into the muddy part of the road or abused in other ways. Um, but what happened um, with the establishment of the modern-day uh, nation-state of the Jewish state of Israel back in 1948, uh, the Jews stood up. They're not dhimmies anymore. They're free, they're independent, they're powerful, they're technologically advanced, um, they're, they're everything wonderful. That can't be. We can't allow that to happen. We can't let that be. So they have to be fought and obliterated to take them back to the status of dhimmies. Again, that that's number three. Um, I'm going to add a quick number four. Um, for anyone who might have gone online and you look up the Hamas Covenant... Hamas covenant, sometimes called a Hamas charter. I call it a covenant because the agreement is between Hamas and Allah. That makes it a covenant. And it was uh, it was written, established in 1987-88. Uh, um, and the first, pre in the preamble of, of that covenant, uh, and you can look this up online, it's in English, uh, it says, Israel exists and Israel will continue to exist until it is obliterated by Islam, not by Hamas, by Islam, as others were obliterated before it. So you ask what this is about. Why is this happening? It's kind of a long answer. 
but it's all that. It's all that stuff. Uh, well, again, something people would pay for. Can it? So is it? In simplest terms, is it this town ain't big enough for the both of us? Does one of them have to go? Is that well? I mean, it could be, and certainly back in uh, 1947, when the United Nations, successor to the League of Nations, um, adopted the League of Nations uh, provision to establish a homeland in the Levant uh, that would be for the Jews and one would be for the Arabs of the region. This is in addition to all the other uh, newly formed Arab nations of the time after colonialism. Jordan was formed, Lebanon. Well, Lebanon had been there before, but not as a modern day nation state. Um, Syria was formed. It was never a nation state. It was uh, part of the Ottoman Empire, Al-Sham, Greater Syria. Um, you know, all the Iraq, th- these were all brand new nations uh, after the end of colonialism. Uh, Egypt, of course, was ancient and had been there forever. Um, but but so the League of Nations transferring uh, the language to the United Nations, um, uh, um, it, it, it established the right of the Jewish people and of the Arabs of the region, each to uh, form their own nation state out of what had been called the British Mandate. The British Mandate was a great big part. I wish you had a map in front of me, but if you can picture the Middle East there, um, that came under British control uh, after World War One, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which previously had ruled all that. And the French Mandate was another part of that. They were more to the north with Lebanon and, and Syria. But all of this part of the Levant Um, was the British mandate and the League of Nations and then the United Nations both agreed, uh, one uh, transferring that authority to the other, the successor, um, that the land should be divided, uh, part for the Jews, part for the Arabs. And uh, the Jews immediately said, yes, we'll, we'll take it, we'll build our nation. And the Arabs immediately said, no. Unless we can drive the Jews into the sea and slaughter every one of them, we don't want anything. I kid you not. That that was the answer. And so as Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, the, the founder, the, the first president of, of the modern-day state of Israel, announced uh, the establishment of the state of Israel, immediately five Arab neighboring nations from every direction invaded Israel. Um, from the north, the south, from from uh, the east, and it was simply amazing that they survived. They not only survived; they, uh, the Israelis, won their war of independence, fought from forty eight to forty nine. Um, but a huge chunk of of the land that was supposed to be theirs um, from the British mandate. Um, first of all, had been carved off by the traitorous British and given to the Hashemites who formed the state of Jordan. Um, But then in the war uh, of independence, uh, Israel lost even more. Um, And the Jordanian army, for example, uh, conquered and occupied all of Judea and Samaria and Eastern Jerusalem. Uh, the Egyptian army conquered what's now known as Gaza. 
and they ruled each of those ruled over those pieces of of the land for the next um what uh 20 well, until 1967 the war of 67 and um never once during that whole period of you know around 20 years or so um did the inhabitants of those areas gaza or judea and samaria under jordanian rule ever once call themselves palestinians the word was just not even used nor did any of the arabs living there say we want our own independent country you're occupying us jordan you're occupying us egypt never crossed their minds not until the war of 1967 when Israel once again, in a lightning fast six day war, triumphed over the invaders, the Arab invaders again, and took back Gaza, took back Judea and Samaria, took the Golan Heights, took the Sinai Peninsula. I mean, they got that far uh, across towards Egypt. Uh, And when the war ended, that's where the lines stood. Um, and so the land was, was, was returned, uh, to Israel, the land that lawfully was part of Israel, never mind historically, uh, going back 3,500 plus years in, in history, this is the land of the Jewish people, but at the end of the hostilities and at the end of a war of aggression by its neighbors, including Egypt and Jordan and Syria, a war of aggression in which those aggressor nation states lost these parts of land and Israel gained them. According to international law, land lost in a war of aggression does not go back to the aggressors. It's quite the opposite. Wow. Oh, yeah. So in any case, that's, that's where things are now. Um, but, uh, of course, after the peace agreements with, with Egypt in 1979 and with Jordan in 1994, the Sinai Peninsula was returned to Egypt, um, and a peace accord, uh, was reached with Jordan, um, excuse me, and the, um, the areas of, uh, Gaza, the Golan Heights and Judea and Samaria, uh, have been administered by uh, the state of Israel uh, ever since, um, come along to the presidency of President Trump, and um, he recognized um, the right of of the state of Israel um, to sovereignty over Judea and Samaria and the Golan Heights. I've been in all of these places, by the way, and I've, I've stood up on the Golan Heights and watched, looked at the the, the strategic command mm-hmm. those heights have, you know, over the land below of Israel. I've stood on the ridges, the mountainous ridges of Judea and Samaria, and again looked down um, into the land of Israel and, and what a commanding position that was. By the way, I've also climbed in and out of the abandoned um, gun turrets up on the on the Golan Heights um, that were used by Syrian gunners to sit up there and take pot shots down at the farmers in in the land of Galilee, the farmland of Galilee below, up until the 67 war. 
Um, and then Gaza, of course, um, the state of Israel under Achiel Sharon withdrew from Gaza completely. Uh, thousands of, of Jewish people were, some of them, literally dragged out of their homes and synagogues out of Gaza in the year 2005. So there have been no Israelis uh, in Gaza ever since then. Uh, but that's 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 where things stand now. So, um, you know, uh, just just putting things in a little bit of a historical perspective there. No, I, I appreciate that. That I legitimately... I... I guess I just kind of viewed it as this ongoing thing and never really looked at why it was going on. Um, I know mm-hmm. I, I said I'd let you go at a half hour, so I still got you for two more minutes. But that <laughs> that 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 we can do a little more. Okay, I it, know I talked a lot. No, no, no. That was that was perfect. I run my mouth nonstop every day for four hundred and forty-two episodes, so I thoroughly enjoy it when I get to I get to listen, especially to someone like yourself. <laughs> but it it makes. It kind of makes a little more sense now, right? It makes the preemptive strikes on nuclear facilities. That makes sense now when they are sworn to do what they to emulate what they embody as perfect slaughter. It makes sense that when you see them, when someone's going on and on and on saying it is our perfect destiny to slaughter you. And then you see them putting, you know, uranium in centrifuges the entire time they're going, it is our destiny to slaughter you at a certain point. You're like. Are we going to, we just going to let them keep doing that? Like, they're, you know, they're building and building and building. And, you know, here's another thing. Um, as you, as you said earlier on, um, you know, there, there have been repeated um, flare ups, if you will, of, of the conflict um, between Hamas and, uh, and Israel, uh, between Fatah, uh, other brigades, Tanzim Brigade, uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization uh, in Judea and Samaria. Um, over the years. Um, but because um, Israel and, and the Jewish people are probably the most moral people on the face of the earth, and I mean the most moral I've ever met in my entire life, um, they could carpet bomb either one of these places. You know, yeah. Gaza is 22 miles long by about seven miles wide that's it it's tiny um the palestinian um areas of judea and samaria they they could be they could be gone tomorrow yeah but israel doesn't do that even when they're attacked even during the the second intifada for example when suicide bombers were coming over planting themselves on school buses and blowing up school buses full of children when they were going inside of pizza parlors full of families mothers fathers kids and blowing themselves and the jews up inside of a pizza parlor the israelis didn't do that the jewish people don't do that they took the defensive measures they needed to take they ensured, for example, uh, and because of the, the landlocked nature of Judea and Samaria, they were able to keep um, a rocket missile launching capability out of their hands there. That's why uh, from Judea and Samaria, you see, well, in the past, suicide bomb attacks, no more since they built up the security fence, um, but other kinds of attacks, you know, throwing rocks, um, knife attacks, 
things like that. But no rockets and no missiles coming out of Judea and Samaria because it's landlocked and the and the and the Israeli security services have been able to seal that off from external supply of rocket uh, rockets and missiles or their parts. Uh, external supply because they don't have the capability to make those to build those on their own but gaza uh, is another story because it not only borders on the mediterranean uh, from which it can be and has been supplied uh, but it also borders on the sinai peninsula and for a long long time israel held a strip of land on the western side of gaza bordering Egypt, bordering the Sinai Peninsula, it was called the Philadelphia Corridor. But in the agreement with Egypt, uh, they gave that up. And what did you get from that? You got a whole bunch of tunnels being built across from the Sinai Peninsula, um, you know, to to ferry, to transfer uh, missiles, missile parts, weaponry uh, into Gaza. And where's that coming from? Well, it's coming from Iran primarily from Iran, the Iranian regime in, in Tehran. And a lot of the funding for that is coming from Qatar, but also gazillions and gazillions of dollars from well-meaning bleeding hearts in Europe in particular, um, which funnel, I mean, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars into Gaza to help alleviate the poverty, build up the infrastructure. I mean, roads and clinics and schools, um, but no, that's not how they use the money. They use the money instead to buy weapons, weapons parts, um, explosives. Um, and um, they also use the generous donation of concrete, which is supposed to be for the building of homes and kindergartens and, and, and apartment buildings, roads. Uh, they use it instead to line the tunnels from Gaza over into Egypt. I've been in one of those tunnels, I've seen them. They're, they're very elaborate affairs, completely lined in concrete, um, sometimes with a little rail line uh, running through, little rail car goes on there to transport the weapons and the ammo. Um, electricity, uh, ventilation, lighting, um, that's where the money goes. And uh, the tunnels are meant to pop up on the Israeli side of uh, the border with Gaza. And I've been in those places. Uh, kibbutzes right on the border. Sithakot, which is one of the cities uh, on uh, close to the Gaza border, intended to pop up so that the fighters, the Hamas, the Pidge fighters could pop up out of there and go grab a bunch of kids out of the kindergarten and either slaughter them or hold them for ransom as, as kidnapped victims. This is, this is what they do. This is what they do. This is what Israel's up against every single day. And now all over again, um, you know, it's, it's, it's happening again, the rockets and the missiles. And there have been well over a thousand. I, I don't even know the number anymore now, but since the weekend, here we are on Thursday, but at least since the weekend, hundreds and hundreds of rockets and missiles have been fired out of, out of Gaza uh, which can now, thanks to Iranian help technology supply, reach all the way to the north of Israel. I mean, as far north as places like Haifa, uh, Netanya, um, certainly the the, the, the the cities further south, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and, and naturally Surkhot, um, Israelis have been killed. 
by these by these rockets. Um, they have shelters. They have bomb shelters in their apartment buildings. They have bomb shelters in their homes. Uh, bus shelters along the street actually are built as bomb shelters with concrete mm-hmm. um, construction. Um, and they have, depending on where they live, uh, anywhere between seven and fifteen seconds Jeez. from when the air raid sirens go off, and it might be at two thirty in the morning, which often it is, to get to a bomb shelter, or they just stay in the bomb shelter maybe overnight to be safer. Uh, when I was in Sergot the last time, this is a couple of years ago now. Um, we, it's a thriving big city, uh, full of families, uh, very modern, um, thriving. We went to um, a kindergarten, and um, the kindergarten not only was under a reinforced bomb shelter roof, but it was underground. The kids' playground was underground. The swings, the slides, you know, the little rocking horses, uh, the walls painted with, you know, very pretty murals of animals and birds and things. Completely underground because they can't let the kids play up on on the ground outside because they'd be slaughtered. They'd be slaughtered by missiles coming in, by rockets coming in, aimed at their kindergarten. Here's one last thing. The places from which Hamas and Pidge are firing these rockets and missiles inside of Gaza, from which they fire, are deliberately, methodically located in civilian areas. In other words, the schoolyard of a school, um, from clinics, from hospitals, from apartment buildings. They're doing it on purpose so that when Israel strikes back at the source of the fire, at the source of the, the launch. Propaganda. Propaganda opportunity. They're going to uh, probably cause civilian casualties. By the way, international law again. If you use human shields, civilians, and their areas as as shields for your military activity and if retaliation harms those civilians you're guilty of the war crime you're the one that put your military facilities launch sites whatever in a civilian area that's a war crime who's taking hamas to the international court at the hague to the international criminal court nobody i know of well maybe they will be now like Jay Sekulow or or somebody like um, like that, but uh, who gets taken to the international criminal court? Israel. Israel gets taken to the court. The most humane, the most moral, the most ethical people that have ever graced this earth. Anyway. No, it. You know, I hadn't. I hadn't because. And anyone can put any spin on on anything. I can, someone can watch this episode, and I can be, or this podcast, and Tommy's an angel. Someone can look at it and say I'm a white supremacist. It's all about how you put the spin on it. But there are some things that you can't, you can't put a spin on, and one of those things is 
is a- Israel has not used thermonuclear weapons from orbit <laughs> to turn everyone around them into glass. And that's something that it's, you can say they do X, Y, and Z. You cannot deny that they have the weapons and they don't use them. That is, that is America for all of our flaws. We didn't start shooting nine megaton warheads from orbit at Baghdad. Not saying that we haven't done bad. They have the weapons and they haven't done it. I mean, in addition, the Israeli Air Force, before they go bomb a target, (coughs) like Hamas has its headquarters inside of apartment buildings, inside of hospitals and clinics. The Israeli Air Force goes by and drops leaflets. And the leaflets say, evacuate now. In 10 minutes, we are going to bomb this place. And they give every civilian advance warning to get out of the place that Hamas is using them, the civilians, as human shields. And then 10 minutes later, or whatever it is, they come and they bomb the site. Who does that? Who does that in the entire world besides the Jewish people? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah, I mean, Nobody you've ever heard of. They also do what's called a knock-knock. So, again, a place uh, that Hamas military commanders are using as headquarters, intelligence sites, arms, weapons, depots. Um, but it's a, it's a civilian apartment building or complex. Uh, the Israeli Air Force will come by. And they will drop a small, uh, non-lethal munition of some kind uh, on the roof of that apartment building, let's say. Just a little knock. And that is a warning to the civilians. Get out of the building. Uh, We're going to come back because you've got Hamas in here. It's called knock-knock. Okay. And they do that too. Who does that? I've never heard of any other people doing such a thing, taking such care not to harm civilians as the Jewish people. Let alone, it's not just anyone they're doing it against. They're doing it against the people that vow to slaughter them. Uh, Yeah, and and, and make every effort to slaughter Jewish civilians and do. I mean, we didn't even do that, right? Didn't didn't Oppenheimer wanted us to drop one off the coast and General Groves was just like, nah, nuke them. I mean, we didn't even do that and they Pearl Harbored us. That's, I mean... This is the this is the reality um, of, 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 of when you hear people trying to make a moral equivalence between jihadi terrorists like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, the Iranians, uh, the Iranian regime, I, I, I hasten to say, and the Jewish people. Yeah. There's simply no moral equivalence whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. There's perhaps it will be a, another episode, but the story of Gerald Bull, the Canadian uh, arms manufacturer. With the long gun. Uh, yeah. Thing yeah. We, we, building. yeah. United States hired him for a little while. We were testing some stuff back in the 70s, see if we could shoot satellites in orbit with an artillery gun. Really cool shit. He kind of went, uh, kind of went John McAfee and kind of went rogue. And the United States was like, you no one's allowed to work with him anymore. And he went to where else? But his whole specialization for everyone listening, you can look it up. There's a great documentary. His whole specialization wasn't necessarily 
necessarily making new weapons because anyone can do that when you have a billion dollar budget. His whole skill was he could take these old, I mean, as far back as World War One barrels, and this guy was just uh, just skilled. He could turn these things into modern, new kind of Frankenstein monsters. Well, who's that beneficial to? Saddam Hussein, who had a bunch of long guns. Gerald Bull came over there and was like, I can build you a gun that you could you could hit Israel with. He was actually no bullshit. He was actually trying. They were trying to build a gun that could launch across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm not even kidding. Mm-hmm. He was. I don't. I don't think it would work. Point is, is Saddam wanted to have two facing east and west, and so he could dominate the whole region. Mossad met with him, and I believe in his home in Canada, or they met with him nearby. An agent kind of they kind of picked him up off the street, and they were like, they told him outright, "We're with Mossad. You cannot. You are directly threatening uh, Israel's survival." And he kind of said, like, thanks, but no thanks. And so, you know, they had their backup plan. And so he left their little meeting place, wherever it was, went back home to his apartment, never even made it in his apartment. Team came out from a van, Mossad, I think seven silence bullets in the back, two in the head, right side of his door. I mean, again, who who does that? Who sets you aside and goes, we're going to kill you if you don't stop? Most people you just kill and go, eh, collateral. Maybe I need to get in a an Israel flag with my American flag. I don't know. Maybe maybe we got to do not a bad idea. Dual citizenship. You won me over, Claire. Not that you were trying to, but you did. Thank you for that. Thank you for that lesson. That was that was insanely informative, and that is that is why I try to talk less when I have you on. Because uh, I, well, I, I thank you for that. I, I yeah. I'm glad people could hear that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Understand maybe a little more about what's really going on. I never knew any of that, and I would like to think I'm a well-read guy. I didn't know any of that. I knew maybe some some of the dates, 48, 67. I didn't know any of that, so I thoroughly appreciate that. Miss Claire Lopez, happy belated Mother's Day. Miss oh, Claire- thank you. Yes. Thank you very much for that. I hope your mom had a happy day as well. She did. I went over, saw her. We had dinner. It was fantastic. Nice. Um, and to everybody listening, happy Mother's Day, belated Mother's Day. Miss Claire Lopez, Lopez Liberty, LLC. I will link your Twitter. I will link your website. Until next time, I hope I hope our our two week uh, I hope our two week breakup is over for everybody listening. It wasn't there was nothing wrong. It was just scheduling. I hope you're yeah. back to our, our regularly scheduled Claire Lopez pro- program. I'm glad on it. Yes, Ms. Lopez. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Tommy. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right. God bless America. God bless Israel, uh, and knowledge is power. So. Catch you that. next time. All right, Claire. All Take right. care. Bye bye.